Hello, and welcome to the Parents Survival Kit Podcast from Surviving to Thriving in Your Household. My name is Gene Schwelin. Next to me, as always, my beautiful bride, Dr. Sonia Schwelin, pediatric psychologist expert and nationally certified school psychologist. We have two guests we're completely excited to have on the show today. Um, we have Nina Allen, and she's going to introduce herself, and also Patrick. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Nina? I'm Nina Allen. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst, and I'm licensed in the state of Texas. And my name is Patrick Moynihan, and I'm an administrative director at Excel Therapies, and I have the pleasure of working alongside Nina, as well as many other of our talented uh, BCBA professionals. Well, that's what I want to dive into. So BCBA, and, and what does that mean? And uh, so today we're going to talk about, you know, just uh, kids, children who are on the actual autism spectrum, um, and really kind of dive into really what that means. Uh, how do we care for these children? How do we give support to families? I mean, we're going to cover a lot of just... How uh, do we navigate services? All right? kinds of things. So yeah, Put it all out there. Um, first of all, so what does BCBA mean? Board Certified Behavior Analyst. Just as you said and before. So, yeah. And what's LBA? Licensed Behavior Analyst. So okay. And so what is, what is a behavior analyst? Um, I analyze behavior. <laughs> there you go. So when it comes to behavior analysts, it's really more dealing with children on the spectrum. Is that accurate? That is. Um, it's... I, I, individuals with developmental disabilities. Okay. So, one of the, yes. one of the things that just from an administrative perspective, that's kind of evolved uh, in the field is behavior analysis has, it has incredibly broad applications, right? There's ABA for organizations, uh, OBM or organizational behavior management, right? Um, the application of behavior analysis um, has kind of been shaped by what insurance companies um, and healthcare providers cover. And so typically that's where we think we now think of the you know, applied behavior analysis as mostly working with uh, pediatric clients on the autism spectrum. But to Nina's point, um, you can practice ABA on, we can practice it on ourselves, right? It's a kind of an approach or a, or a teaching methodology in a sense. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that. So when it comes to ABA services uh, directed towards uh, individuals who are on the spectrum of autism, um, I know there's a lot of questions out there. So the first thing I kind of want to do, because I am a dad, um, and even before we actually started the uh, the show today, um, we talked about just um, um, how do we approach certain certain things with, with our kids. And, and so the questions I have, so I know that a lot of parents, um, when they find their kid has some type of disability, whether it's autism or anything else, a lot of times they question themselves like, is this my fault? What did I do? Um, did I do something wrong? Um, and then there's also just the different thoughts about, you know, does this mean my kid's not gonna be normal for the rest of their life? Will they go to school? Will they go to college? Will they get married? Will they have a job? Mm. You know, there's all these things and thoughts that go through parents' head and that's gonna be really, really tough for parents. Um, so I wanna kind of start with the parents first because I think until they really can kind of wrap their head around and have the support they need, they really can't be all their children really need when 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 having to, to manage uh, some of these behaviors and whatnot with with the spectrum. So, well, Gene, it does all start with the parents. But um, when we talk about services, I professionally I don't diagnose, so I always recommend that um, parents look to other professionals as well because there's a lot of aspects that go into the initial diagnosis and the initial support, and it does take a village. Yeah, that's a great point, too, because one thing that, um, you know, I know Dr. Flynn does a lot of assessment for autism. I know that there's a lot of clients that call into the Next Steps Worldwide um, intake line and, and just questioning, you know, is their child on the spectrum? We have college students that go off to college and all of a sudden they're they're questioning whether or not they may be on the spectrum and whatnot. Um, and what we, happens a lot, too, I just want to put this out there, is that children will get diagnosed with autism and then mom and dad are calling us and saying... <laughs> I have the same symptoms or mm. I didn't realize it. But now that my child got this diagnosis, I think this is also what's been going on with me for so long. And I would like an assessment to put the puzzle together. Mm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, as a non-clinician, but somebody who has an opportunity to talk with a lot of parents, you know, a lot of what we need to do is just listen. I think what we're all saying here is, um, it's called autism spectrum disorder for a reason. Um, and so at the point where we, you know, have parents set up a, a diagnostic evaluation with a clinical psychologist um, and go through that process, 
um, that's not a process to take lightly, right? I mean, um, it's something that we we really want to chat with parents about. Um, at the point where uh, the parents, you know, do, do have a diagnosis for their child, that's really the the start of the journey, right? And so I think at that point, a lot of what what we do is part of the functional behavior um, assessment process. It's a lengthy process, right? We can't we can't do it in an hour or two. Um, sometimes our uh, board certified behavior analysts, it'll take them a month or two to do the observations and the clinical interviews and, and generate the report. Um, and so, like Nina's saying, there's there's a lot that goes into that. A big piece of that is just understanding what are, what are the parent or caregiver or family's goals for this child. Um, to your point about leading a healthy, normal life, what is the definition of healthy and normal, right? Um, is my child going to have an IEP forever? Is that the best thing for uh, him or her? And so having some of those conversations to really understand, you know, what is the focus of, of our uh, service delivery model? Yeah, I guess, and, and I guess the, the place to start first is, you know, the diagnosis. Like, you actually have to have a diagnosis before you can go anywhere or you really understand what the next steps really could be or should be um, initially. So, And then if we're going to get super real, uh, you said it's a starting point. We have to have the diagnosis in order to build the treatment plan to actually figure out what to do next. But it's also necessary for most insurance companies, mm -hmm. you know. Um, when I'm doing the assessments and, and writing the reports for these families, I even have to write them in a very specific way just so that I can make sure that if ABA, right, is being recommended – applied behavior analysis, so that's ABA therapy. If that's being recommended, then the family will at least have the best chances of getting that service covered by their insurance company. So diagnosis in the beginning is it's everything. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, and we have clients that call in that have been diagnosed with the schools in, in, in certain ways, and they still need an actual clinical psychologist to give the official diagnosis before they'll even cover it. So, you know, P we have- Pediatricians aren't even allowed to do that. They They- they understand autism to a certain extent. They can recognize it when they see it, but they also have to refer to a psychologist to get the full assessment and diagnosis. So what I kind of want to ask first is, because I want to kind of step into this in different ways, and you guys can go anywhere you want to go, but um, we're talking about a spectrum. So there's a, so and the spectrum is like really broad, right? When it comes to autism, um, you have high functioning, you've got, um, anything above that below that so why don't you guys kind of explain what the spectrum really looks like well i think it speaks to just how this has evolved over the last i would say 30 years um aba specifically the therapy has really changed a lot but at the end of the day it's it's hard to be a parent regardless right <laughs> let's let's just say that um and taking that first step to get that diagnosis is, is that is so important um and it takes a lot for parents to get to that point and where they want to reach out and they want support yeah it's really difficult right for parents to even reach out get support in that initial diagnosis and then the really cool thing like nina said is that our understanding of autism has evolved so much that we can even conceptualize or think about it on a spectrum that that just goes to show how much more people are starting to understand it as it's not going to show up the same for everyone and we have to consider different components of the diagnosis in different people because people are individual and we have to take an individual approach to that to treating that person as someone who deserves that that respect and understanding of who they are mm -hmm. and what that diagnosis shows up for for that for them right so what you said is there's high functioning and then there's other levels of it. So it's really just talking about <laughs> impairment, right? The level of impairment when compared to what we expect should be um, functional, right? In our society, then we kind of like gauge how much is this person impaired? Even those words don't sound that good, right? I hate some of the words we use in our diagnostics of autism, but in terms of functioning, we're really looking at functioning. So how well is someone communicating? Where are they struggling socially? How, how, how much is that impairment? And then we decide how much level of support someone will need, okay? So it can look different for every single person who has an autism diagnosis. Some individuals are verbal, right? They're speaking to you fluently, and yet you kind of you feel that there's a social difference there or some kind of communication difference there. And then other individuals aren't verbal. They're still, you know, really having a difficult time with developing just basic language skills and they're 10 or 11 years old. Okay. 
And so the level of impairment, again, in quotes, because I just really don't even like that word, but it, it's what's used in diagnostics, is what really determines where they fall on that spectrum. I'm so glad you said that because we often talk about support needs and in every step of your life, that those support needs are going to look different. Right. And when you have a developmental disability or any sort of challenge or deficit, um, it, it, it evolves as well. And um, one thing that I did want to point out is the actual diagnosis has changed. And so you can no longer be diagnosed correct me if I'm wrong, um, with Asperger's. Yep. And so that's a common term that people have used a lot. And it goes to show that as we gain more knowledge of the field and the deficits in those functional needs, um, how the diagnosis actually changes as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing, go ahead, Patrick. Oh, I, I was just going to add, I, th I think it is. It's a, it's a fascinating conversation because when you go and you, you look at the sort of medical definition of autism, you know, it, it's, a, it's a spectrum disorder. It, you know, typically with a, with a medical course of treatment, if you have a bacterial infection, you, you prescribe an antibiotic and that is the sort of cure, right, for, for, for that uh, um, you know, impairment. Here, you know, uh, oftentimes autism, you'll see that it's, it's characterized by certain things, right? So communication deficits, as you alluded to, Dr. Swalen, um, and social, emotional, and, and, and language issues and, and things like that. So when you have a disorder that's characterized by something, you know, nothing we can do is cookie cutter. And that's a lot of why um, we want to provide those different environments, right? Going into a home setting or a community-based setting, um, generalizing to environments where the child is a little bit more familiar, um, offering center-based services, um, just because what's going to be, you know, helpful um, for one child is not going to be helpful for, for the next, right? And that's a lot of the detective work that goes on. And what you said about cookie cutter, I think, is going to really nicely um, tie into what I know we're going to talk about eventually on this episode is even how ABA treatment has changed so much. Because back in the day, my day, <laughs> it used to be so robotic and, and and cookie cutter, right? And it's absolutely not like that anymore. And so I'm excited to be able to talk about that. But what were you going to say? Well, I was going to just say, uh, as far as the question I have, because I know there's a lot of clients that call into Next Steps regarding um, concerns about their kids potentially being on the spectrum. And we have parents calling in for kids that are not even two years old yet in a lot of cases. So when is what is really the age where you can really determine whether or not a kid is on the spectrum? That's a great question. And, and so a lot of times we do get clients or parents who are calling in and their child is maybe uh, 12 months old or 18 months old. And they're trying to be proactive because maybe the pediatrician has shared um, concern about some kind of developmental delay and they just want to make sure that there is a pediatric psychologist involved who has eyes on the child. And so it's, it's proactive, you know, just developmentally, how can we support this child? Um, other times parents are doing it on their own because they have other children who are on the spectrum and they recognize the signs, mm -hmm. right? They're much more alert to what they should be looking for. They see the signs and then they want to be proactive themselves. Um, and so, like you said, we don't generally diagnose autism until a child is at least two or older. If it's earlier than that, what we're doing is we're, we're saying, you know, let's give it some time. It's really normal for development to happen on a spectrum also. Mm -hmm. And so just because one two-year-old is doing all of these things, it doesn't mean the next two-year-old is going to be doing the same things at the same pace, at the same uh, level of um, mastery, okay? And so early diagnosis of autism, it's important, but it's also uh, something that a lot of providers will say, well, let's do a few interventions see how they progress because I'm not quite comfortable giving this full diagnosis yet until I can see how they respond to some of these interventions. That comes down to like just functioning, right? I mean, kids function and they develop functioning, you know, at different levels and, and whatnot at a young age. So, and there are some families where we see a regression and that can happen to where we refer to get that diagno diagnosis because of a, of a dramatic regression of skills. So they lose some skills and we want to get on board with helping increase that skill acquisition again. That's, that, that's super important that you said that. I think diagnostically that's really important. We spend a lot of time as psychologists when we're doing the assessments talking about regression. So for parents you know, that are listening, if you don't re really understand what that means, it's, it's when your child maybe is talking just fine, you know, they're three years old and all of a sudden they stop. They're not talking anymore. 
they're not making much eye contact with you anymore. That's what's considered a, regret, a regression. So it's something they were doing, and now you're not seeing those behaviors anymore. Go ahead, Patrick. Absolutely. The, the only thing I was going to add is those developmental milestones. It's something that all of our staff have, have to be trained on and something that's you know important to, to know as a, as a parent. And you can talk to a doctor or a clinical psychologist about it. One of the things that we've seen um, used with kind of great success is this modified checklist for autism in toddlers. It's the, called the MCHAT is the acronym for it, but it was developed, I believe, by three clinical psychologists. Um, and we were fortunate to reach out to them. We actually have a version of it on our, on our website. But you can, if, you know, as a, as a parent, if you just Google MCHAT, it'll come up. Your doctor can administrate it. Um, but it's, it's essentially 20 questions. And for toddlers, I believe it's 16 to 30 months who would be too, uh, too young to really be officially diagnosed. It's a good kind of rough questionnaire in terms of where is my my child in terms of where he or she should be developmentally um, and it'll give you based on the score if the child scores um, very high you know n no issues low maybe go and, and set up a follow-up with a with a doctor or um, a clinical psychologist and then extremely low you know maybe start in early intervention services but there are some things uh, short of a, an official diagnosis that parents can do just to you know maybe have a little bit more peace of peace of mind as well I agree yeah, with that. Absolutely. And, and you talk about it all the time, like you can, you know, assess kids as young as three to four months old. So if you have any concerns for whatsoever, developmental stuff, right, right? But that's yeah. kind of like the, knowing is half the battle, right? So just seeing some of these things and, and, and getting some support or some resources in the very early stages can be beneficial. Absolutely. So I want to kind of talk about um, the street that I've grown, that, that we've lived on. I've been there for the last, you know, 18 years now. And so there's a kid on our street that um, suffers from autism or has autism. Um, and he's just, just from observations, just, you know, we live in a neighborhood that the school is two blocks down the road. And so even like our 18 year old, almost 18 year old who's graduating now, I remember walking him to school every day, you know, and whatnot through, uh, through kindergarten, through fifth grade. And we would come across this, this young kid at the time, um, with autism, obviously, and his mom, and this kid was adopted, um, and just at different times we would just see him just i mean just go wild and start hitting and i mean just i mean really really abusive in the behavior um and, and my heart went out to this mom and she was i mean i don't know how she how she could have even done it because she was so calm and just did not respond i mean just so patient i'm like man, she, she is like, she's, she's gotta be tight with God because there's no other way that I, I don't think anyone could do that. Um, and so when you see, cause you see those things, right. And that's kind of the fear I think parents have. And so I think it's important to kind of, you know, hear those cries. I, I feel those for a lot of parents with kids on the spectrum and, um, you know, and there's a lot of kids out there that just with different disabilities and whatnot. Um, and again, as we talked about earlier in the show, just, you know, is it my fault that I do something, you know, it reminds me of John uh, chapter nine, verse one through three. And they talk about the disciples like, you know, there's a blind man that come across and you know, what happened is because of sin, this man's sin or his parents sin, is it the reason why he's blind? And Jesus replies, no, it's, 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 for, it's for God's kingdom and for his glory. Um, it's for a purpose. And, uh, and, and God puts those things in our lives for certain reasons. Uh, but I think it's important for us to really understand some of these things that parents are going through. We went to Fort Lauderdale not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago for vacation with our family. And on the way back, uh, we flew there. And so flying back, we were in the second to last row and there's six of us. So it's me and Dr. Swaylin and our four kids, <laughs> 17, eight, three, and almost two. And so we thought, you know, we're like, you know, wonder what the plane line rides gonna be like with us four kids. And, and we even had an experience on the way there. And this is how people respond with kids sometimes. We, on, the, on flying out there, um, there was a gentleman that actually paid for a seat that was right next to uh, me, Dr. Swillen, and, 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 and one of our other kids. And he's like, I'm not sitting there because I, I have to. And I said, well, we'll trade seats if you want. He's like, he wanted the window seat that he paid for. And I said, well, we can, you can have this aisle seat over here or across the way and not be about the kids. And he's like, those are my options. I either get the window seat or I get the aisle seat. I pay for the window seat. I want the window seat. And and he and he, I didn't pay to sit next to a bunch of kids. You know, and then he was like really <laughs> upset. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was, you know, but I understand sometimes with kids and whatnot. So look at our young kids. And of course you hear all the crying kids on the plane on the way back though, the very last row behind us, there was a family uh, a mom and dad and two girls and one girl was a little bit older i'd say one was probably about six and the other one was i don't even really know probably 12 13 
Um, but she was definitely on the spectrum and she'd have these loud outbursts and just would, I mean, her, her parents were so patient and she actually had a therapist that actually had to travel with them. They were actually living from Florida and they were traveling to California for vacation. Sure. Um, and so it just, I mean, managing that plane ride was very difficult for us. And we, you know, just because of the things that were going on and being in, on a plane, um, I, I just, you know, again, my heart goes out to these parents and how they actually are able to be so patient with these, with these, you know, with, with these kids, with these challenges. Um, it's really amazing. Yeah, I know. We thought we had it rough. Two toddlers on an airplane. It's like, no, nah, this is nothing. Some good perspective. <laughs> and, Nina, I don't know if you maybe want to talk about, like, you know, those are those are a lot of the things that we're working on oftentimes, right? So this spectrum, you talk about, you know, maybe kiddos who are a little more mild on the spectrum, moderate to severe. Um, and and some, some of what we work on in addition to skill acquisition, which is more of, like, the self-help, self-care, tying shoes, putting on clothes, eating, feeding, et cetera. We also, we, we can assist with the maladaptive behavior reduction. Um, and maladaptive is just a, you know, fancy word for not super desirable, right? So behaviors we right. want to reduce. I don't know if you'd like to. I generally don't like calling them problem behaviors. I'm going to do my quotes because, um, you know, they're not necessarily always a problem. <laughs> um, and so I want to go back to the support needs that mom, um, her journey is probably so beautiful and I would have liked to, you know, really know what, what it's like in the day of life of a mom. My, my total respect goes to any mom. <laughs> and, um, so I want to go back to the functional behavior assessment. Yeah. I and mean, really quick, that mom that, that, that we mentioned, I mean, um, they're still living down the street. He's probably, you know, in his young twenties now, um, and he's, you know, they have uh, uh, behavioral therapists or uh, analysts or whatnot that, that come daily to his house. And, you know, they'll walk. We see them walking every morning, every afternoon, every night, like they can lapse around the neighborhood and whatnot. So um, it, it's a long journey, you know, it's, a, it's a, and, and in some cases, a never ending journey that parents have to go through. Right. Right. It is a lifelong journey. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of adults and doing vocational services um, and quality of life services um, in dayhabs. And so it's given me a really great perspective. Uh, we talk a lot about early intervention. Early intervention is a really hot topic right now. Right. But that wasn't always the case. And kids grow up and they grow older. Um, if we can be so fortunate to be on this journey with them and support them, um, I, I think that the services right now have really, really evolved to maximize potential in any individual. So. Yeah. And, and kind of moving away from, you know, a, a lot of the, you know, I'm sure you've found as well, like ABA as a field is, is full of lingo, right? It's a very jargon right. heavy field. And so you hear terms like, you know, punishment or reinforcement or things like that. And oftentimes those, you know, those operational definitions, you know, from a clinical perspective, have a different connotation than they might to, you know, myself as a lay person, right? Or a family or a parent. So, you know, big, a big component of what we do, as you alluded to, Nina, is that um, that parent coaching or that caregiver training, right? Our goal at the end of the day is to, you know, give parents and caregivers the tools that they need to really become that behavior analyst or that behavior technician and start generalizing. Because at the end of the day, even if we're spending 10, 20, 30, 40 hours a week with these kiddos, um, it's still the the minority of, of time during the week. And so um, for parents to be able to catch that vision and have those tools and resources, you know, that's where we really start seeing things take off. And, and that's, like you said, it's a very exciting journey. Yeah. What does that mom do on the plane or, you know, when behaviors happen in a grocery store? I, I myself have been in Target. I don't even know how many times and you're just like, oh, my gosh. But yeah, we have it with um, our own kids sometimes, yeah, right? I mean, right? It's, it's, it's any kid, we right? Had it this sure. morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went. Toddler. Yeah. So right? and, we're, and we're outside in the farm and we have it with our toddler, you know, I mean. Um, and it's, it's kind of, you know, these parents on the plane to kind of to kind of go there for a moment, you know, the cool thing about them was, and we were like, actually like just admiring them. A lot of times they just ignored it, you know? And, and one thing I want to mention, like, you know, I kind of got biblical for a second, but you know, if we all really look at it, all of us have our strengths and our weaknesses, mm. every one of us, but we're all made in the image of God. We're all his special creation. And it was purposed that way for a reason. Um, and so thinking about the girl on the plane as an example, one thing that I, that I, that we saw through some of the things that were like, oh my gosh, and you know, like, you know, it, it's gotta be difficult for them, but now we're also having to, you know, experience it as well. So it definitely gives a, a great appreciation for it. 
But there was like one time she she was sitting there talking and she the, the girl mentioned, you know, well, I'm just really tired because I was up all night. I was texting my mom all night, just telling her how much I love her and how much I love her. And, I, and that, that's so beautiful. Like, there's so many good moments. It makes me think of Atypical as an example of the TV show. And we sure. really enjoyed that show because the kid was so funny. You know, I mean, the, you know, all of our kids are just different. And there's something that's beautiful about everyone. And, and, and it's just... You know, all kids shine, and some kids are just, you know, challenged in different ways. We can do a whole nother episode on the neurodiverse movement. Yeah, there you <laughs> so, go. Um, but, no, it's it's seeing that and um, seeing how much grace that they have. And um, the they must have had a really great ABA therapist that taught them how to plan to ignore. <laughs> and, and just to say, too, I think that's that's part of the, the, the neat science behind it is really understanding you know, what is the reason for those behaviors, right? Uh, our behavior analysts and our staff will talk about the ABCs and Dr. Swalen, I know you're like, you know, deeply familiar with that, but understanding what is the genesis of behavior? Why is that occurring? And sometimes it's, you know, I want the toy or, you know, if you're in Target, it's I want the candy bar, right? And so what do you as a parent do and learning just better strategies for how to handle that in a positive way um, that sort of, you know, aligns things, you know, in, in, a, in a more effective manner. So um, it's, a, it's a great point. And I think, you know, especially as, as kids get older, you know, our goal is really to give them the option, right? We are all made in the image of God, like you said. And so, um, you know, with pragmatics and with social skills and things like that, it's really to say, hey, here's, you know, if you want to, you know, be in your class and, and make friends, whatever, we can teach you effective strategies for doing that. But you don't need to fit yourself, you know, as a square peg into a round hole, right? That's not what we're here to do. Um, so I think I think that's a really important point that you brought up as well, Gene. Yeah, so, yeah, go ahead. No, um, we, way back when, um, in the old days of ABA, <laughs> right, um, we're, not, we're not creating tiny robots, and um, no two child is the same, and so it goes back to that individualized approach, and um, what, what can we do as clinicians to evolve with the field as well is so important. Um, we're no longer sitting at the table doing 40 hours of just trial after trial after trial. It's, no, let's go where the learning happens. Let's go in the natural environment. Let's play, and let's get back to the play. And so I think that that's what I've just had such a great pleasure of um, getting away from that trial-based, um, very clinical approach and seeing individuals just shine. Yeah, well, that's a great point, too, because, I mean, obviously, you can a kid can spend 40 hours a week in clinic or in center doing these trials and whatnot, but when they get home, it's a completely different, you know, atmosphere and, and whatnot, and, you know, parents really need to know how to help, you know, their kids the best way possible in the everyday interactions they have and whatever environments they're in, right? So let's talk a little bit about ABA. So you've been alluding to it now this whole time. So let's let's jump in. Um, so talk to us about ABA. What what should parents expect? Okay, they come to see someone like me. They get the diagnosis. Insurance is going to cover it. ABA is generally one of the like gold standard treatments for autism. Um, so most psychologists are going to say, let's start there, right? And now they come to want someone like you. You're the ABA therapist. What can they expect? Even before they come to me, um, they, they generally go through an intake process with any company that they go through. And getting that funding is something that parents aren't really well-versed for that challenge. Um, getting ABA covered can be um, a whole hurdle that they may need to seek other support. And um, I've, I've seen... Um, in my profession, that when when parents are supported from day one, um, when they come to a company or to come to seek help, um, it it doesn't just start with me. It starts with the the person that is on the phone that's helping them navigate this whole insurance world. Um, it's unfortunate that parents have to fight so hard for services a lot of times. And so when they get to the assessment process with me, uh, they've already gone through so much and just trying to get there. Most companies have waiting lists, um, fortunate enough that we don't. And um, we really try hard to support whether it's with us or another provider we, I refer out so much um, just because I may not be that one provider that's going to help that family to the maximum potential and I recognize that um, I think that that's a really important thing as clinicians to know um, where's our scope of competence uh, but when they come to us for that assessment it can be a lengthy process and parents are also aren't 
prepared for, okay, well, I got the script for ABA. Let's get started. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they want to know, okay, when is this going to, when is this behavior going to go away? When are we going to get back to whatever their normal is that they want? Um, and as we've seen with COVID and everything, everybody's normal is shifted a lot. (laughs) But one thing that I wanted to kind of educate is that parents, um, when they go to seek services, they they can be met with lengthy wait times. Um, It can take a long time to get insurance to cover it, um, ABA, and then it can take a long time for the assessment to happen um, to get in the door day one with therapy could take a month or so. Sometimes even longer, yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, because even just to get in for an autism assessment uh, at other clinics, not at Next Steps, because at Next Steps we don't have a waiting list either. So that's kind of cool. Awesome. Um, but other clinics do. And sometimes those wait lists are, you know, three, six, nine, 12 months long. And parents have no choice but to just wait sometimes. So. Mm-hmm. And time is so important. Um, You've gone this far as a parent to seek the help and to get the diagnosis. And then um, it's that hurry up offense, right? But uh, I also want to encourage families to also look at other providers as well. I encourage families to go take tours at other clinics and to speak with other clinicians because um, you have a choice of your provider, right? And you may, um, one thing may fit for one client and it may not fit for another, so. Right. I think it's a great point. And I think, you know, just to to talk a little bit about like ABA, just like you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't go to the first pediatrician who pops up on Yelp, right? I mean, to do your to do your research and make sure you have an ethical provider. Um, you know, I mean, I think a, a lot of times, um, unfortunately, there's this um, there's this sense that uh, that a diagnosis of autism is like the key that unlocks all these services, mm-hmm. right? Um, even though ABA has a broad application, you know, Anthem or Blue Shield or whatever is only going to cover it um, if they have this autism diagnosis. And so, to make sure you find an ethical, you know, clinical psychologist who's who's only going to give you that diagnosis if it if you're supposed to have the diagnosis um, and to your point as well I think you know just really you know taking the time as a as a parent or caregiver um, you know this is a pretty intensive service right you're going to be your child's going to be spending anywhere between 8 to typically 30 35 sometimes in extreme cases 40 hours a week um, with this company and this provider so you know evaluate the entire team right make sure you understand who your your behavior analyst is I think just to, if I can, to touch briefly on the structure of services, right? Um, we've talked a lot about it, about the assessment. Why does it take so long? So typically the first um, appointment after we do an intake, and I'm still fortunate I get to do a lot of intakes and talk with families and, and parents, um, but is we're going we're gonna to have uh, an evaluator uh, really take you through that process. So the first um, FBA or functional behavior assessment appointment is something we call the clinical interview, and it's kind of just that. Um, we want to sit down with you as the, the parent or the caregiver. We want to understand, um, you know, your goals. We also want to understand, you know, um, medical history and um, other supports that that uh, the child may have, right? If the child's in speech and OT and has an IEP and physical therapy and social skills groups and this, you know, we're not going to burden that child with 40 hours of structured time, right? We need to really take all those other services into consideration. So that's kind of the goal of that clinical interview is to like, I guess set the tone. Is that a fair way of, of saying that? That's a perfect way. Right. And then yeah. from there, what we're going to do is, is kind of establish a baseline for some of these behaviors. So whether we're working on skill acquisition or whether we're working on, you know, the, the behavior reduction, um, understanding where we're at right now. And so everything we do is very data driven. It's very empirical. Um, you know, I think that's, that's why it works. Um, because we're making, you know, real decisions based on data that we're taking day in and day out. So the behavior analyst is going to sort of create a baseline of those behaviors and that can take one or two or sometimes three sessions. And then after that's done, they'll generate a report. So similar to how you'd receive a diagnostic evaluation report, um, you as a parent or caregiver, um, you know, if you're getting ABA out there, you should expect a nice thick packet, right? I mean, these reports are, um, should be chock full of, of not just the baseline behaviors, but um, you know, deeply detailed care plans in terms of what these behaviors are, exactly the programs that we're running. Um, again, nothing should be cookie cutter, right? So if the program is for tying a shoe, 
you know, you should be able to really understand how we're going to break that down into bite-sized components and help your child learn to tie their shoe, right? Um, and then from there, typically, you know, treatment will begin. So at that point, um, I don't know if you want to explain, but the behavior analysts and the behavior technician, how that all works together. I, I, I just wanted to point out that I love doing the intake part of it as well, because that's when that individualized approach really starts. It's where you're really learning what the family and the individual needs. And, um, and then you develop the program even before you get to that behavior part. We talk a lot about behavior, but it's it's getting that whole picture of have they had ABA before? What are their challenges in home? Do they have more challenges in school? Um, do they need help with more other providers <laughs> um, with food or anything like that? And so uh, I really enjoy getting that the backstory essentially because it it that assessment is pretty thick and um, it does it. I say that I write these though for insurance companies and I always give that kind of disclaimer first. Um, so so you mentioned the clinical intake, um, it's gonna be a clinical interview. I think it's very important for the parents at the same time in this interview to really kind of be interviewing in some, some aspect the actual uh, provider because it's about that relationship and really feeling comfortable with that provider, especially if your kids gonna be spending this much time, you know, with with this team, you have to have a relationship you really can count on and believe in. Um, there's a lot of you know centers out there that are more focused on the the dollar that comes in from the insurance company. So if you're not gonna do 40 hours, we don't have we have a waiting list for you, or we're not gonna see you, or you know, not really so worried about the occupational therapist or the speech therapist and all the other components. We talk about on the podcast all the time that it takes a village. Uh, to really make a difference with a child. And that's true for a, a kid that, that has challenges and a kid who doesn't have all these other types of challenges necessarily. Um, it takes a village. So Absolutely. I love all the questions that I get when I give tours to families. Um, I really, that tells me how involved they're going to be. And I encourage those questions. Um, ask all the nitty gritty questions because if you're going into a center and everything is very secretive and very hidden, then um, that's not transparency. And that's something that I'm, I, I'm so, so thankful that in my practice that I have been able to be fully transparent. These are your medical records. You should have a copy of everything. You should be involved and you should see the progress. We're, we're also thankful with the digital age that parents can actually see the skill acquisition and the progress day to day with these therapists. Yeah, so. That's awesome. You know, I think I think that's really important too. Um, just being transparent. I mean, I think parents need to understand too. Like, you want a provider who's going to be, you know, a hundred percent real with you, even telling you things you not may not want to hear. You know, that's the truth, right? So let's let's just break this down a little bit more, if you don't mind. So, imagine that you know I send a client over to y'all, and from now on, the only recommendation I'm going to write is y'all need an FBA. I won't even tell you how many hours this kid needs or whatever. That's your decision. You guys collect your data and make that decision. Um, <laughs> but after that, right, parent has no exposure to what ABA is whatsoever. Can you guys give examples of maybe what bad ABA is and then what good ABA looks like and how parents can distinguish between the two? It's a great question. That is a great question. Um, it comes down to whether or not the services are going to be in center, in home, or community. Um, I kind of look at that first. Um, and if if they're having a treatment recommendation of 40 hours a week, we typically we look at the intensity of services that we're going to be providing. Um, and parents aren't parents aren't. Um, educated as far as who's going to actually be working with their child. Um, I know we've mentioned a couple of times about registered behavior technicians. Those are the therapists. They're overseen by the BCBA. Um, they're going to be the ones that are going to be implementing that treatment plan. Uh, we are also fortunate enough to have great care managers, or sorry, case managers and um, caregiver support. And so, um, so it's a multi-tiered approach that you're going to have that support when you go in. Um, your treatment plan for your child will have a breakdown of all of those hours and what that's going to look like. So when we say 40 hours, it's not 40 hours with that therapist. It also involves looking over the treatment plan, um, parent 
training, parent coaching. Um, it may involve some group skills or group therapy time. And then it involves a lot of updates and program updates because we want to make sure that we are looking at the progress. Yeah, and, and exactly. Just to, to build on that, I think, you know, we, we have a, a BCBA who, who would say bad ABA is bad for you. And I think just to, to really talk directly to parents and caregivers out there, like, you know, not all ABA is created equal. And I know you've alluded to that, Dr. Swalen, but um, because it's a relatively new field, um, there is a there's a, a really large continuum of, of quality out there. And so I think one of the things you'll see is there are a lot of um, big, bright, shiny organizations, national and regional organizations that spend a lot of money on uh, marketing um, and have taken outside, you know, financial dollars, right? I mean, un unfortunately, um, while clinician-driven organizations um, like us think of children as individual children, um, you know, there are companies out there and parents do your own research um, who don't feel that way, right? Again, who, again, you alluded to this gene, but the almighty dollar and the fact that why would I recommend uh, 20 hours a week if I can recommend 40? And that's essentially, you know, du doubling uh, the, the, the uh, billings to insurance. So I think, you know, in terms of being really cautious as a parent, this is a very intensive service. Um, and because it's a newer field, it's also less regulated and licensed, right? I mean, just to, just to talk broadly about the field, if you go and see a speech pathologist, every state in America uh, licenses their speech pathologist or their clinical psychologist. And so they're both board certified by ASHA or whatever the professional board is, but they're also licensed by the state. They're a licensed professional. Texas is a state that licenses their BCBAs, which is why Nina is not only a BCBA, but an LBA. But in California and Idaho, for instance, it's just that board certification. So you know, these, um, these BCBAs and these individuals are not necessarily licensed. And again, because it's a newer field, um, there's relatively less regulation from every, from everything from what the treatment plans should look like to the supervision requirements, right? Um, if you have uh, speech therapy, you may be seen by a speech pathologist or a speech pathologist assistant, but states um, and, and the, the boards are very specific about those requirements, right? It's two SLPAs to every SLP, right? So they're really keeping the quality control tight. There are currently, um, to my knowledge, no regulations in terms of how many behavior technicians a board certified behavior analyst can oversee. If they're registered with the board and an RBT or a registered behavior technician, they're required to have 5% of their hours supervised, but that's 5%, right? That's not half, it's not 75%. So you need really, I, you know, if, if you're a parent, I would encourage you to ask questions like, what does your training program look like, right? Behavior technicians, although um, our BCBAs and our case managers are at least masters and sometimes doctoral level clinicians um, who are highly skilled and highly trained, theoretically, a, a behavior analysis company or an ABA company could go hire somebody off the street or somebody who has no healthcare experience put them through a 40-hour training program and call them a behavior technician and send them out to your child, right? So those are just things, you know, frankly, red flags and things to be aware of as a, as a parent. I think a lot of parents just assume that this is a highly, you know, regulated field and it is becoming that way, but really it's it's critical as, as effective as the services are, do your research and do your homework. And I think some of those questions to ask are, how are your behavior technicians trained, right? Um, you know, how do you think, what's your service delivery model, right? Do you have case managers? Um, how many, you know, behavior technicians are overseen by one behavior, uh, uh, board certified behavior analyst? So those are some proxies for quality, right? Um, oh. In addition to the, oh, go ahead, no, please. Just how, um, how many behavior therapists are going to be working with your child on a day-to-day mm -hmm. -day basis, on a weekly basis? What is the turnover like? Because yeah. um, the revolving door, unfortunately, bad ABA at some of these companies. Um, and you want a secure team. Uh, you want to be able to have that support and know who to go to. Um, and that starts all the way down at the behavior therapist level. Um, before RBT, registered behavior technician, um, you could just go and get a job as a behavior therapist. And so that's that's just um, a title that people throw around a lot. And um, now as we're evolving, um, Texas recently in the past five years uh, did the licensure. So we are regulated by TDLR. We are regulated by the board, um, the BACB. And we do have to adhere to guidelines. Uh, and 
So that's a great question to ask is, are your therapists registered? Um, and how many BCBAs? Um, how many BCBAs are on site? And what what is their caseload? What is their caseload? Because um, that's something that can really, really affect your child's progress is whether or not there are too many clients under one BCBA. So I guess as a parent, like one of the, I guess one of the last questions I want to ask is as a parent, I know it depends on really recommendations and going through that assessment and really what's and that could be over a couple of months or a certain time frame. But um, if my kid needs, you know, 20, 30, 40 hours, is that going to be a combination of in center, in home group? I mean, is it, is it a combination? Um, because I know that, you know, I see a lot of therapists in the home, but is it, is it, is it kind of a kind of a joint effort? That's a great question. Um, some clinics will offer only clinic-based services. Uh, I am a firm believer in hybrid services, and so we offer support where they need support, and whether okay. that is in the community, in Target, um, at a water park, and or in the schools, or in or traveling on vacation. Exactly. There's a lot of great organizations that do support. Um, individuals with disabilities going on vacations and so that that's a really really cool way to help out Excellent. so let's uh, just to get kind of juicy here i know you have a lot of experience working with clients give me an example of some bad aba right let's just put an obvious example out there well, i want to I since you brought a bad aba i want to bring back because we had lunch yesterday and mm -hmm. uh patrick and you talked about someone that a, a client you came across or, or whatever i just remember the shot caller so i forgot everything else they got shocked when you said that but you know shot color therapy for a kid you know with you know that has autism well it's it's yeah i shouldn't be laughing it's not it's not funny and i think that's where um you know one a big part of i think our mission and our mandate is you know education and access and only then therapy right i think a part of what we want to do you know we put this on our website is educating folks to the resources available to them, right? If funding is an issue, let us help you navigate that, right? If you're on a waiting list for six months, don't be on a waiting list for six months, right? Some things like that. Um, and a big piece of that in, in a state like Idaho, and that's where that occurred, and, and we do have a location up there, is a lot of parents need that educational component, right? To just understand why is a certain service more evidence-based or more effective than a you know non-evidence-based service? Um, I think, you know, you, common sense plays into this quite a bit, right? If somebody's putting a shot call on your child, um, you know, run the other way, right? With your child, um, <laughs> take them out of that situation. So I think that's a, a big piece of it. I think the other piece is, is access too, right? Making sure that folks have access to these services, right? So promoting, we work a lot with um, a Medicaid clients, right? In, in some of the other states. And so just kind of doing our part to make sure that, you know, parents don't have to make difficult decisions about whether their child can receive ABA or not and only then kind of focusing on treatment. So a lot of it comes down to, I think, you know, common sense, right? Um, and then other things like metrics of quality are huge, you know, things like, it sounds like a basic silly thing, but uh, is everybody on staff, you know, background checked, criminal background check? Do we know everything there is to know about an individual who's gonna be working with your child, right? I mean, these are sort of small things, but things that you'd be surprised, you, you, really, you really do need to ask. My first love is actually OBM, and so um, it just goes to show on ABA and how many fields and disciplines. So you're talking in letters. Oh, Our sorry. audience doesn't know what you just said. Uh, organizational <laughs> behavior management. There you has, go. Um, and so you talk about access and what parents sometimes do at clinics is you drop off, they go behind a closed door, and they don't have access. I welcome families to come and sit in in the sessions and to really get that outside of parent training, see what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that's really important um, and in knowing what's going on. I would also just say to, you know, coming back to the common sense thing, a lot of what we see is unfortunately, and this happens a lot with bigger companies, you know, are decisions for your child being made by clinicians or by people who have something to gain financially from that, right? And you should, as a parent, you know, or a caregiver, um, ask those questions, right? If your child is recommended for 40 hours a week, that may sound like a great thing. A lot of parents that you know, I talk to during intake process, it's like, I want as much as I can get. Relief right? in some cases too, right? Absolutely. But then how many discrete programs and interventions are you running, right? Look at the care plan. How are you utilizing 40 hours a week? 
that's a lot of demands to place on a child, right? And it's only appropriate in certain cases, right? So, you know, if something doesn't check out or something doesn't make sense, you know, uh, you know, initially and still to this day, a lot of our clients are folks who've come from other ABA organizations and are really um, fed up or, you know, kind of disenfranchised with uh, services overall. And so I think oftentimes really pleased to see hey, ask those questions. We want to be transparent. Um, we want to promote that interaction. There's nothing, and you could probably attest to this, Nino, like our BCBAs are talking all the time about what a relief it is when parents want to participate, when parents really take an active stake in their child's progress. And that's a huge determining factor in terms of the long-term success of what we're doing. Absolutely. Parents that are, that are involved are, it's going to be key the progress um and i was also going to say that just families in in general should be involved if they if they don't get an opportunity to look over a treatment plan before that treatment starts that's a huge marker um it's a huge red flag they should be involved in what programs are going to be run at the end of the day, this is, um, they do have a choice in that. And so a lot of providers, I hear a lot from families where they're not able to take that involved approach where they can see the programs run or have input on what, what gets taught. And this is, they, they have a choice. It's really good to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to be, a, you know, obviously it's going to be a really a life changing, um, uh, situation in some cases that affects the entire family. So the family really needs to be involved, have that support resources and all that to really um, be able to move forward in a positive way. So, when, And one last thing, if I could, just on that point is just have expectations, right? Have expectations of us because at the end of the day, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, scientific approach, it, you, we get caught up in the numbers, right? The quantitative and um, standard deviations and, you know, they'll show you the numbers on a progress report but also look at the qualitative factors, right? If, we're, if we've been working for six months trying to teach your child how to tie their shoe and they're not tying their shoe, ask questions, right? Um, and our hope is that, you know, qualitatively, um, folks start to see that really significant progress, both, you know, whether we're, whether we're working on skill acquisition and whether we're working on uh, those maladaptive behaviors being, being reduced, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? And I think that's really critical. Um, if you're not seeing progress, don't allow somebody to explain that away you know, and, and really look, look for those results for your child and, and for your family. I like that expectations and accountability because, um, as clinicians, we can just go back to the juicy, um, the old school BCBAs right. that, or, you know, just old school professionals that are very stuck in their ways. I hope that parents and families are constantly, um, having that expectation of me that I will evolve with, with the field as well. Sounds good. Well, there you have it. There was a lot of great information today about ABA and, and autism and whatnot. So uh, I know there's a lot more we could probably go into. And so I think it'd be great to have you guys come back and join us again for another episode. And uh, we really appreciate you guys coming on today. Uh, so if you have more questions, you can always, uh, you know, put those at the bottom of the, of the podcast and uh, we'll definitely respond to you. And if you need resources, we can definitely get with Nina and Patrick and get you guys taken care of in that area. Um, but Thank you again for joining today, the Parents of Alva Kip from Surviving to Thriving in Your Household, and we will see you next week.